In Jungian psychology, the shadow is the part of the unconscious that contains all of those characteristics the conscious mind considers dark or bad. If the conscious mind thinks aggression is wrong, then the shadow is the part of the personality that is aggressive. Jung believed this was how we cope with having to act in ways we would prefer not to. A healthy personality has a shadow and soul in balance. Mickey Cohen was Ben Bugsy Siegel's shadow. Ben was tall, handsome, suave, and welcome in the elite Hollywood circles. He mixed with the glitterati, courted royalty, and bedded starlets while his shadow, Mickey, was picking their pockets, robbing their safes, and breaking their bones. In so many ways, they were opposite sides of the same coin. Both were violent men, out of place in the Hollywood environment. They liked many of the same things, good food, fine clothes, beautiful women, and shined shoes. But where Benny was able to submerge his dark side and present a more acceptable persona, Mickey was what he was. He was loud, boisterous, and pedestrian. He made no apologies for his lifestyle and his lack of refinement. Together, Mickey Cohen and Benny Siegel were an effective extension of the East Coast Syndicate on the West Coast. They changed organized crime in the West from the backwater Unione Siciliano Blackhand Penny Ante operations that had existed under the old-style mustache Pete's into the multi-million dollar industry that controlled narcotics, gambling, unions, and politics. After Benny was punished by his syndicate partners for skimming from the Flamingo Project, Mickey Cohen was left alone as the mob's West Coast muscle and easily filled Ben's shoes. He didn't have the flair of Ben Siegel, but Mickey Cohen had a style all his own. Mickey flourished on the West Coast and appeared to have more lives than a cat. He was shot at, bombed, arrested, imprisoned, threatened, and like the fighter he started out as, Mickey kept coming back for more. In the end, he outlasted all of his enemies and went out, if not on top, then pretty darn close. Because organized crime seems to be an East Coast phenomenon, Mickey Cohen never really got the recognition that he deserved. That's a shame, because Mickey was a bit of a rarity. In a business where most guys end up in a prison cell or at the wrong end of a gun, Mickey Cohen managed to avoid both of those pitfalls. One of the reasons Mickey didn't get the recognition that other men he worked with did was because Mick was a second-generation mobster. Just like no one remembers the people who arrived in America on the next boat after the Mayflower, Mickey showed up in Chicago long after Al Capone had seized control of the underworld. And by the time Mickey came west to join Ben Siegel, Bugsy had already infiltrated the extras union and shown Jack Dragna, who was boss in California. Mickey's rise to power came after the heyday of the Jewish mobsters. Meyer Lansky was well-established in Havana and the Southeast, and was looking forward to retiring. The carpet joints were flourishing in Louisiana, Frank Costello was firmly ensconced as the prime minister, and there was really no new world to be plundered. The conquistadors had come and gone, and it was Mickey's job to oversee the operations that had been put into place. He did that with the skill and practice of a journeyman gangster. Mickey may not have been an A-list racketeer, but he was efficient and ruthless at his craft. Like Sam Giancana in Chicago, he paid his dues as a hired gun, worked his way up the chain of command, and saw the traps and tricks that had foiled those in front of him. By the time he was in a position to run his own operation, Mickey Cohen was as adroit and cunning as the men he succeeded. Even though the trail had been blazed before him, Mickey Cohen's rise to the top wasn't easy. He had to pay his dues, and he got his start in the rackets like a number of other wise guys in the ring. The things that make a good pug and a good gangster are similar, 
An imposing presence, tough fists, and a chin that can take a punch are important characteristics for a racketeer, although the imposing presence is mostly for character. Many of the mob's toughest characters were small men who made up for their diminutive stature with guts and heart that belonged in guise twice their size. Meyer Lansky and Lepke Bukhalter are two that come to mind, although this trait is not limited to Jewish gangsters. Though Westies, Mickey Featherstone, wasn't all that big and he was known for his rock-solid fists and the tenacity of a Jack Russell Terrier. The Genovese family leaders Punchy Iliano and Quiet Dom Cirillo both got their starts as boxers, as did another Genovese member, Lil Augie Pisano. Iliano earned his nickname because of his boxing background, and those who know him insist he is anything but punchy. For his part, Cirillo faced Jake Raging Bull LaMotta in the ring several times, although he was less than successful. Mickey Cohen was born hustling, a Brownsville, New York native, the same neighborhood that gave the world Abe Reilly's and many of the Murder, Inc. troupe. Cohen was whisked away from the poverty of that Brooklyn slum before he was six years old and moved with his mother and older siblings to the Boyle Heights section of Los Angeles, where his family operated a drugstore. Of course, this being prohibition, the Cohen Pharmacy, in the middle of a Russian Orthodox Jewish neighborhood, operated one of the countless small-time gin mills in the area. As a boy, Mickey served as a delivery man for his brother's moonshine operation, which resulted in his first pinch at nine years old. The charge was smoothed over by his brother's connections, and nothing came of it. But the seed had already been planted in Mickey's mind. I got a kick out of having a big bankroll in my pocket, he said in his biography. Even if I only made a couple of hundred dollars, I'd always keep it in fives and tens so it'd look big. I had to hide it from my mother because she gets excited when she sees a roll of money like that. Successful hustling, whether it's bootlegging, selling newspapers, or swag, requires moxie and the fists to back it up. And that's how the preteen Mickey discovered he liked to box. Although the sport was illegal in California, and even more so because he was so young, Mickey found many different ways to get in the ring. Along with the money it gave him, he found he also liked the respect he earned. As he grew, Mickey continued boxing, and with the blissful ignorance of youth, his thoughts turned toward becoming a professional. The skill was there, as were the promoters who saw something special in the young teen. The only problem was that 15-year-old Mickey Cohen's mother didn't know he was boxing at all. One day, the butcher stopped my mother, who didn't talk really good English and said to her, Mrs. Cohen, you must be proud your boy's boxing for the championship. So she says, what's this boxing? See, she didn't know anything about boxing or that sort of thing. Mickey won the championship, and that sealed it in his mind. With the blessing of his older brother, he told his mother he was going to the beach and headed east to become a prize fighter. Fate had other ideas. Mick bounced around the Midwest for a while and landed in New York, where he met some of organized crime's toughest characters. Tommy Dioguardi, brother of the labor racketeer Johnny Dio, was a fight fanatic, as was Oni Madden, the New York killer who would end up running the mob's resort in Hot Springs, Arkansas. A man of his word, Mickey recalled later, his faithfulness to his own kind is the strongest thing a man can have, and if Oni felt that you were an all-right person, there was nothing that he wouldn't do for you. A bad bout with featherweight world champ Tommy Paul ended Mick's boxing career when the champ knocked him so senseless he wandered out of the ring and was on his way to the dressing room before anyone could catch him. 
I began to see that I really didn't have it to be great in the ring, he said. So then I decided I'd had enough of the fight business and everything else. A washed-up pug with no education whose only friends are gangsters has few choices in life. That's where Mickey found himself after his fight with Tommy Paul. He fell back on the only thing he knew. Hustling. I started rooting, you know. Sticking up joints with some older guys, he said. By now, I had gotten a taste of what the racket world really was the glamour. The way they dressed. The way they always had a pocket full of money. He didn't realize it at the time, but the places he was robbing were mob-controlled carpet joints, the illicit nightclubs, and casinos that predated Las Vegas. Later on, I learned that we were lucky to pull it through, he recalled, because we didn't even give a thought to whose joints those were. We were stepping on the toes of the outfit. Fortunately for Mickey, the mobsters whose toes were crushed realized the rough talent he had and set him straight. After a killing he preferred not to talk about, statute of limitations and all that, he said Mickey moved from Cleveland to Chicago, where he later met Al Capone. In the Windy City, Mickey, working as a muscle in a card room, learned how influential the outfit had become. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and when a couple of thugs died in a shootout, Mick was pinched. I certainly ain't gonna get out right away, he thought to himself, and laid on the bench to sleep. A telephone call from his Goomba, Egan's rat member Spike Hennessy, to a police captain changed that, and Mickey was out on the streets without having to post bail. The charges then seemed to disappear. These guys were notorious anyway, and besides, they had a piece on them, Mickey explained. It was after that that Mickey met Al Capone for the first time. I walked into his office kind of awed because I was a young kid anyway, walking into the office of Al Capone, he said. He did something which was a very big thing for me. He kind of held my head and kissed me on both cheeks. That greeting solidified Mickey Cohen's place in the Chicago outfit and led to bigger and better things, mostly on the gambling side of the outfit's operations. Mickey was soon running card games and then craps tables and supervising other mobsters. He was close to Matty Capone, Big Al's younger brother, and with Matty's backing, Mickey found he could get away with things other mobsters couldn't. Al intimated to me like if I found something to get into, he would back me up, you understand? While he was working under greasy thumb Jake Guzik, Al's bagman, Mickey experienced the first of what would be many assassination attempts. Not surprisingly, the details of the attack were etched firmly in Mick's mind. I had on a camel hair coat that boy I was really in love with, he recalled. It had a big check in it, not a loud check, and I think this was the second time I had worn it. So when they came by shooting, I didn't even fall because I didn't want to get my coat dirty. A beef with another gambler made Mickey leave town, and for a while, he was working back with Lou Rothkopf in Cleveland, a close friend of Meyer Lansky and Benny Siegel. There wasn't enough work for a guy like Mickey in Cleveland, so Lou and his friend Joe Gentile suggested Mickey head west to work with Ben. Los Angeles was a good 30 years behind in many aspects of organized crime. In fact, crime in Southern California was barely organized at all. Jack Dragna was running things with very little input from the National Syndicate, and most of his operations consisted of immigrant shakedowns and gambling ships, which took players outside the 12-mile national limit to gamble on the high seas. Dragna reluctantly accepted Lucky Luciano's admonition that Ben Siegel was heading west for his health and the health of us all, but Dragna didn't like playing second fiddle to Ben Siegel. 
Mob scholar Carl Sifakis refers to Jack Dragna as a man who thought small. A native of Corleone, Sicily, he bounced back and forth between Sicily and America from 1898 to 1914, when he returned to Southern California to stay. Dragna quickly fell in with the Unione Siciliano, a legitimate benevolent and protective organization for immigrants that had been subsumed by mobsters into a protection and shakedown racket. Dragna was the visible frontman for the Unione, but his interest was clearly criminal and his abilities limited. One of Dragna's favorite scams was to sell protection and then send in some goons to threaten the marks. When they came to Dragna for help, he'd charge them extra to chase away his own people. That way, he caught the victims coming and going. Dragna wasn't above murder, though. When the scheme backfired and the victim wanted his tormentor rubbed out, Dragna instead had the victim killed. What makes a mobster successful is presence and follow-through. A tough guy who walks into a joint and looks intimidating is one thing, but following up on the promised threat is essential. A mobster who is incapable of showing he has the power and guts to pull off a beating just looks pathetic. This is the problem Jack Dragna had. Independent bookmakers knew that Jack was in no position to shake them down, so when he demanded protection money from them, they shrugged it off without repercussions. Dragna rose to the top among the homegrown California mobsters only because he was the best of a poor lot, Sifakis wrote. Along with mobster Johnny Roselli, another of Al Capone's friends, Dragna created the offshore gambling industry. Roselli and Dragna gutted a schooner, the Monfalcone, and put in an orchestra pit, gambling rooms, and sports racing book. The ship was an instant hit with the Los Angeles in-crowd, and unlike speakeasies, where somebody had to know somebody and everything was hush-hush. The gambling ships openly touted their operations on billboards and advertisements. The Monfalcone caught fire and was scuttled, but the gambling ship industry was a Dragna Roselli staple for years. Jack was very powerful and very well respected, Mickey said of Dragna, but he got lackadaisical. He wasn't able to put things together to the satisfaction of the Eastern people or even keep things together to their satisfaction. Dragna didn't work the political angles like Frank Costello did on the East Coast, or even like Al Capone in Chicago, and that made it difficult to keep operations going. The protection that owning a politician or two provides is essential, and Dragna was unable to pull this together. The syndicate knew that Los Angeles was worth the effort, and that's another reason they sent Ben Siegel out there. The relationship between the Chicago and New York mobs put a strain on the syndicate, and California was the fault line. There was respect, but little love, between the forces of Al Capone and later Tony Accardo and the five families of New York plus the Jewish mobsters. When Ben Siegel came west to set up the syndicate's wire services there, the tremors were felt all over the country. Dragna was backed by Tony Accardo after Capone went to prison. But the Chicago outfit was not tough enough to extend enough protection to L.A. to keep New York away. Johnny and Jimmy Roselli chafed under the direction of Benny Siegel, but were smart enough not to take him on directly. In many cases, their wrath was directed at his number two, Mickey Cohen. If having to put up with two Jewish mobsters with the backing of Lucky Luciano wasn't bad enough for Dragna, Having those mobsters start pushing an alternative wire service for bookies was. 
Dragna and Roselli were backing James Reagan's Continental Press Service, while Cohen and Siegel were pushing the transcontinental wire. The stakes were high, with bookies paying anywhere from $100 to $1,200 a week for access to wire service race information depending on their own handle. Under Benny's direction, Cohen and his boys busted up a Continental office, breaking heads and tearing out phone lines. Eventually, Benny had Reagan killed in Chicago. Benny Siegel's knocking over Continental was kind of a slap in the face to Dragna and Roselli, Cohen said, because they thought they were running the West Coast. Dragna was really from the old mustache days. The worst thing you can do to an old-time Italian Mayhoff is to harm his prestige in any way. And that's what took place when Benny came out here. For years, Bugsy Siegel's presence in Los Angeles served as a firewall between Jack Dragna and Mickey Cohen. But Ben wasn't going to be around much longer, and when he was gone, Dragna had no trouble finding the courage to feud openly with Mickey. When Ben headed to Nevada with Virginia Hill and a couple million of his mob friends' dollars, Mickey stayed in Southern California to oversee the syndicate's operations there. Vegas and I disagreed, so I had to push myself to go there, Cohen wrote. But I had an understanding with the Cleveland people that being out this way, I would make myself available from time to time in Las Vegas for pieces of work. The day before Siegel's 1947 execution, he met with Mickey to discuss the situation in the West. The Flamingo's opening had already been a disaster, and the casino was limping along woefully, although it was beginning to turn a profit, as the law of large numbers caught up with the players and the casino edge began to take hold. Still, Mickey knew that Ben suspected his time was at hand. He asked about the armaments the operation had in Los Angeles, and what shooters loyal to him were on hand. There's no doubt that Benny felt there was some kind of come-off going to take place, Cohen said. I guess he wanted to be prepared for it, but he wasn't prepared soon enough. Before Ben had a chance to set up a defense, he was shot to death as he sat in a Southern California bungalow. The long-range sniper was so accurate, his shot blew one of Ben's eyes clear across the room. No one was ever arrested for the hit, although Mickey had his suspicions of who ordered it and who fired the shot. Because he wanted to stay alive even after retiring from the rackets, Mickey mentions no names in his autobiography. But he suggests that the hit was done without pay as a favor for the men who requested it. Immediately after the hit, it was business as usual. Mo Sedway and Doc Stasher took over the Flamingo hours after Ben was killed and Mickey received his own orders from the syndicate. I took over from Benny right away on instructions from the people back east, he said. Naturally, I missed Benny, but to be honest with you, his getting knocked off was not a bad break for me. Pretty soon I was running everything out here. As the syndicate man on the West Coast, Mickey began meeting with the movers and shakers of Hollywood and the top politicians of Los Angeles. He did favors for Harry Cohn, head of Columbia Studios, and for Frank Sinatra, who was hot for Ava Gardner, but was being beaten out by Cohen gunman Johnny Stampanato. Mickey developed lifelong friendships with men like Sammy Davis Jr. and stepped in to defend Davis when Cohn wanted Frank Costello to have the entertainer whacked for dating Kim Novak. Another relationship, which was to have ramifications much later in Mickey's life, was his friendship with William Randolph Hearst who ordered his Los Angeles Times editors to stop referring to Cohen as a hoodlum and to start calling him a gambler. But none of the Hollywood types or even the police commission in his pocket could help Mickey when Jack Dragna declared war. Before Bugsy's bones were cold in the ground, Dragna began plotting against Mickey Cohen. 
It was now or never, Jack reasoned, and he pulled out all the stops to get Mickey out of the way. A combination of uncanny luck on Mickey's part and incompetence on the part of the Dragna crew made the War of the Sunset Strip look like a Hollywood comedy. One of the first salvos was fired as Mickey was heading home to Brentwood and was ambushed. Under fire from shotguns and tommy guns, the hit looked like one of those unbelievable scenes in a movie where the bad guys open up on the star with a platoon of heavy weapons, yet the star manages to avoid every shot. In Mick's case, it was really happening. As the glass exploded from his Cadillac, he lay on his side and managed to steer his car up Wilshire Boulevard without hitting anything. I'm probably at my coolest in an emergency, he said. The minute I sensed what was happening, I fell to the floor and drove that goddamn car all the way down Wilshire with one hand. I probably couldn't do it again in a thousand times. He escaped with just a little damage from flying glass. Twice, Dragna tried to get Mickey in his home, the first time using a Bangalore, a long, tube-like explosive device used by the military to clear barbed wire and beachheads, but the TNT failed to detonate. The next time, a dynamite bomb exploded beneath the Cohen house, but the blast was directed away from the living space by a concrete floor vault that shielded Mickey and his family. Actually, the neighbors got it worse than I did from the concussion, he recalled. Sharpshooting hit men were only slightly luckier. Once, as Mickey and several friends were sitting in a crowded after-hours diner, a Dragna shooter opened up with a thirty-six rifle and hit Mickey in the arm, tearing away much of the flesh. Buckshot from another gunman ripped through the diner, striking a couple of innocent patrons and injuring them slightly. Unfortunately, Nettie Herbert, a longtime friend of Mickey's, was killed in the shootout. Another shooter was even less fortunate. Mick was coming out of a joint and was walking toward his new caddy. He bent down to examine a scratch on the fender, and as he did so, felt a bullet whiz past his head and ricochet off the car. The gunman didn't stick around for another shot. In 1950, the war attracted the attention of the Senate Select Committee on Organized Crime in Interstate Commerce, better known as the Kefauver Committee. Mickey was subpoenaed to testify before the commission and was lambasted by New Hampshire Senator Charles Toby. I remember the old senator kept calling me a hoodlum. He really used some terms that were uncalled for from a senator in that type of thing, Cohen said. Is it not a fact that you live extravagantly, surrounded by violence? The New Hampshire senator asked Mickey. What do you mean, surrounded by violence? Mickey replied, indignant. People are shooting at me. The exchange and appearance did little for Mickey, and based on the findings of the Kefauver Commission, he was indicted, tried, and convicted of income tax evasion and sentenced to four years in federal prison. While Mickey was doing time at McNeil Island, his friend Johnny Stompanato began dating actress Lana Turner. The relationship would have profound, life-changing implications for everyone involved. To the end, Mickey denied that John Stompanato was a gangster or even a bodyguard. He claimed Stompanato was just a close associate who dabbled in that gray area that straddles the line between legal and unlawful. Stompanato was a handsome, intense former Marine who managed to always find a wealthy woman to support him. His services were not for sale as such, but it would not be unfair to call him a gigolo. Lana Turner was beautiful, wealthy, and very high maintenance. She was an alcoholic with a track record of attracting the wrong men, and was known for her whirlwind romances and quick marriages, followed by equally quick divorces. The Stompanato-Turner combination was electric and doomed almost from the get-go. 
but neither Lana nor Johnny could break away. They fought continuously, loved passionately, and intimidated each other, but the two dominant personalities were attracted like moths to a flame, with equally tragic results. There was no love lost between Mickey Cohen and Lana Turner, however. Since each was close to Johnny, they saw the other regularly, and Lana, whom Mickey said was possessive, blamed Mickey when Johnny failed to come when she called. Stompanato told Mickey over and over about his feelings for Lana Turner, so when Mickey received the telephone call that Lana's daughter, Cheryl Crane, had stabbed Johnny to death, he was shocked. I hung up the phone and drove over to Lana's home and pulled into the driveway, and Jerry Geisler, the lawyer, is coming out, Mickey remembered. He says, If Lana sees you, she's going to fall out altogether. John's dead. The body's at the morgue. Mickey was the one to break the news to Johnny's family in Illinois and was asked by the family to make the necessary arrangements. As he sat in the morgue, Mickey began to have his doubts about the story he had been told about how Johnny was killed. I don't believe Cheryl killed him, he said. I don't want to outright accuse anyone, but I don't believe it was Cheryl or Lana who did this thing. Somebody must have come in somehow and stabbed him. The feud between Lana and Mickey simmered, and with the backing of the studio... Lana let it be known she was afraid that Mickey would seek revenge. Mickey called Lana on the story, and she blamed the studios. But days later, the pair made headlines again when they showed up at the same restaurant, and Lana, spotting Mickey before he saw her, fled through the kitchen exit. Mickey said he was angered by the beating Johnny took in the press and struck back by releasing the letters Lana wrote to Johnny to the press. They showed a different relationship between the lovers, than what was being portrayed by the media. The plan backfired when it appeared Mickey was trying to blackmail Turner, but he maintained it was merely to show the truth about how Lana felt about John Stompanato. In the end, Cheryl Crane was not found criminally responsible for John's death. Mickey bemoaned the coroner's jury verdict in the press. This is the first time I've ever heard of a guy being convicted of his own murder, he said. Mickey's relationship with the Hearst family put the aging gangster back in the limelight for a final time after heiress Patricia Hearst was kidnapped by the Symbionese Liberation Army, a group of American terrorists who viewed successful capitalists as the enemy of the people. The Hearst family was a prime target for the SLA, as the family's media empire stretched from coast to coast and brought in hundreds of millions of dollars. Shortly after Patty was snatched in 1974, Mickey was approached by a representative of the Hearst family for assistance. They wanted him involved because he was well thought of in the black community, he wrote. I was involved in gambling in other days in the black community, Mickey wrote. I have a lot of friends there that love me and whom I love dearly. The friends Mickey referred to, of course, were the numbers runners and others connected to the black underground who might have been able to get a line on SLA leader and former convict Donald DeFries. Cohen visited one possible link in Soledad Prison, but nothing came of that. After DeFries died in a Los Angeles shootout, Cohen was again contacted to see if he could intervene. I reached three young people who were SLA members, or at least associated with them, he wrote. It became a real cloak and dagger operation. We met at night in different places, changing cars all the time. Cohen had four meetings with people connected with Patty Hearst when she was on the run from the law and used his underworld connections, both black and white, to try to track her down. I kind of had a sixth sense and a hunch, so the next day, after one meeting, I called some people in Cleveland, Cohen recounts. Can you run it down and see if that little girl, Patty Hearst, 
happens to be around there anywhere? A day and a half later, goddamn if the word doesn't come back to me about her maybe being there. Cohen then negotiated with his SLA contacts, but it became clear Patty, who was in Cleveland, as Cohen suspected, wasn't coming back willingly. When the SLA implied that Mickey's people were looking at another shootout, self-interest took over and he backed off. I'm on parole, and that's all I needed for a goddamn shootout to happen and somebody getting killed, he said. The whole thing fell apart, Mickey said, when Catherine and Randolph Hearst, Patty's parents, told him they didn't know if bringing Patty back was such a good idea because they couldn't guarantee she wouldn't go to prison. Cohen's mobster ethics took over, and he ended his involvement then and there. I don't want to be rude, Cohen told the family, but I gotta beg off this thing. If the situation is such that you folks don't know whether she's going to prison or not, I don't want no part of it. One thing Mickey Cohen didn't do well was prison time. He was a fastidious dresser who liked to keep clean so prison togs and weekly showers were torturous for him. When he went to prison for a second tax evasion conviction in the early 1960s, he made up his mind that he was going straight when he got out. Passing up an opportunity to buy his freedom by ratting on Paul Rica and Tony Accardo, Mickey was sentenced to 15 years in prison in 1961 and immediately was sent to Alcatraz. This Alcatraz is unbelievable in the United States of America, he wrote. It was a crumbling dungeon. At the time I was in Alcatraz, it was only for personal enemies of Bobby Kennedy. After Alcatraz closed, Mickey was sent to Atlanta, where he took over the electrical shop from Vito Genovese, a friend of his. In 1963, a crazed inmate named Estes McDonald clobbered Mickey from behind with an iron pipe, damaging his brain and partially paralyzing him. From there, he was sent to Springfield, Missouri, to the Federal Prison Hospital. On January 6, 1972, an aging Mickey Cohen was released from Springfield and returned home to California. He was mobile, but barely so, and only able to walk with the help of a walker. His release started what would be fair to call a farewell tour, because he went from Springfield to Hot Springs, Arkansas, to pay his respects to the widow of Oni Madden, and from there to New Orleans, where Mickey spent time with Carlos Marcello. He said hello to some friends from the Cleveland mob and finally stopped in Vegas. Then it was back home in retirement. He stayed out of the spotlight, eating with friends, occasionally speaking to the media on this or that and following the fight game. Mickey hadn't stepped foot in a ring in almost 50 years, but he never lost his love of boxing. Until the Patty Hearst incident brought him back into the public eye, he lay low and tried to keep out of trouble. The last thing he wanted was more trouble with the IRS. I live as I lived before, but I'm not into what you would call any action, Mickey wrote. I don't know if I'm living on my reputation or what, but very seldom can I go to any kind of affair where I'm not asked for my autograph. Mickey Cohen died peacefully in his home in 1976.